Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, welcome back everybody to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. Today is a special episode. You know why? Because we're going back to the future. Uh, I am here with John Miller, co-founder of Marketo and founder of Engageo, and the first person I ever had on my podcast three and a half years ago. So John, welcome back. How are you? Uh, it's great. So uh, how many episodes have you done since then? I think there's 170 some odd episodes in the stream, uh, but some of them I didn't number because we did them at conferences. So for whatever reason, we didn't number those. But uh, yeah, yeah, All, coming up on 200. I'm honored to be back, and it's great to talk to you. We we are long overdue. Uh, is, you know, for for everybody listening, John and I have known each other a very long time. When he founded Marketo, there's a whole backstory to that, which I, I learned of Marketo's founding through a buddy of mine uh, at a poker game. And then John and I met, and I was like, "Wow, these guys are building the next generation marketing automation system." And and I was all in. John and Phil were nice enough to to let me be a, a small investor in the business and advisor. And the rest is history in terms of our partnership and relationship with Marketo and now Adobe. But then one thing happened, right, John? You you decided one day to say, I'm going to go build the thing that I wanted to have at Marketo that I don't have. And you launched uh, Engageo. And how many years has that been now? Engageo uh, is about four and a half years old. We started on Pi Day. Uh, so March 14th, 2015, which is 31415. That's kind of fun. Well, maybe before we jump into the blog post that you put up that I really want as the, the main focus of today, because it was some really great insights and thoughts you shared, is just a quick update on, on how Engageo is doing. I think it'd be good for people to know, because I get that question all the time, and I tell them, but they get the rare opportunity to hear it from, from you. I mean, Engageo's going really well. I mean, account-based marketing has been probably the biggest thing in B2B you know, for the last four years. You know, I think I can maybe take some credit for helping to make that happen as yes, well. Yes, for sure. You know, and so, you know, we have a little north of 240 companies who are, you know, using the software. Uh, companies include, you know, Anaplan, Pendo, Snowflake, JDA, you know, so a lot of, you know, good mid-sized large tech companies, you know, and they're really, you know, and they're using the solution for, uh, really targeting and understanding their accounts for orchestrating multi-channel interactions and plays and measuring results. And perhaps most importantly, and we'll talk more about this, to help bring marketing and sales together into a more unified team. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. And and I, and I don't think we can say the name, but you even just closed company that I think they're Fortune 100 or Fortune 500, but you know, ginormous enterprise uh, company doing billions and billions of revenue that went all in on ABM. They won the Serious Decisions uh, ABM Award. I don't know the official name of the award, but that was something they worked very hard to. Uh, and and they are now an Engageo customer and we'll, we'll jointly be working together to make them successful on the platform, which is which is great. I think it's also important to mention that you are marketing automation system agnostic, even though your roots are, of course, Marketo um, engages a platform for any of the leading marketing automation systems. And so if people haven't checked it out, it's something that I suggest that you do. If you are not an ABM practitioner yet, but you're in B2B marketing, definitely get a demo from those guys. In fact, John, I'm going to, at the end of the program, I'm going to invite you to do something with me. So we'll leave that as, as, as a, 
as, as for the end of the podcast. Let's jump into your post. Uh, the title of the post, if you guys haven't read it, is I predicted marketing automation and it changed everything. And here is my next prediction. So you can find this post on LinkedIn. If you look for John Miller, uh, you can also find it at engageyour.com in the blog area. Um, depending on when you hear this, you might have to do a little bit of searching, but, uh, it was a great post, John. And I'd like to start off with, you know, what prompted it? What was the, what's the backstory be, you know, you sitting down and saying, I, I need to talk about the future and, and I need to actually look back a little bit first. Well, what prompted it is that it's it's about time to finally start, you know, kind of showing a little bit more of my grand strategy for Engageo. Um, you know, we when I when I left Marketo, you know, about four and a half years ago, you know, I had a single vision, which was to build a next generation marketing platform. And, you know, I didn't want to just go into a hole and spend, you know, two or three years just building something and not having a product in market. And I wanted to take advantage of the the ABM trend that I, I saw starting to emerge. Yeah. Um, and so we started as an ABM vendor, but we are increasingly moving beyond just ABM. You know, we actually call ourselves today a B two B marketing engagement platform uh, because I think part of what we do well today is we look across people and accounts. So point is, we're evolving, the market's evolving, and you know, it was sort of time. I think you know, I thought to share. Uh, a little bit more about the vision of of how I saw marketing changing and where I saw Engageo going. Talk about the first shift um, that that fifteen year period where really marketing technology came on the scene, which was exciting. I mean, it was a game changer for me in my career. Right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> for, for for certainly many of us. Um, not only because I was on the practitioner side using marketing automation as early as two thousand three. But of course, then having such great success driving revenue and, and, and converting marketing from, you know, probably a, a bit of identity crisis uh, of, of the people who do great brochures and great events and, and, and great content to really driving revenue. And then I started DemandGen to help people with the recipes that I had learned. What's your perspective? I mean, has marketing, have we completed the rebrand yet, John, in terms of uh, solving that identity crisis on, on marketing's role within companies these days? I mean, I think certainly a lot of companies, marketing has nicely evolved to, you know, own more of the revenue engine and, and uh, become, you know, as I like to say, earn their seat at the revenue table. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of change that happened. You know, I mean, gosh, so 2000, if you think back to you starting Mark Animation in 2003, you know, just like Google AdWords was a baby back then. Yeah. Right? If, you know, it was in beta in the year 2000. You know, marketers were generating online leads really for the first time. And I think a lot of marketing automation evolved to solve the specific problem of marketers needed a place to capture all these leads they were generating. And they needed to do something with them until they were kind of ready to pass to sales, who then sales would then take over. You know, and obviously the other thing that kind of came online really in this, you know, early days of marketing automation was email. Yeah, you know, and market, you know, that was an important channel, and marketers owned it, right? So marketers had the key to customer communication, and I think that really did help marketing to to build credibility and respect. In addition to owning revenue, they also owned the the kind of core communication channel, and I think that's why marketing did, you know, has had such a good, you know, last fifteen years. You know, it was because of the the credibility and respect that this change in this technology allowed. Yeah. 
Well, the the post that I'm I'm working on, and maybe it's out by the time this one airs. It, it certainly will be out by January, and it my working title right now is the new normal. And and like you, I I take a look back. I go a bit further back um, into the '80s because I I wanted. I don't know. I probably was drinking a glass of wine somewhere when I started typing <laughs> this out, and I started thinking about how did we get here, and the we is is marketing. Uh, and I remember in the 80s, uh, which was a very exciting time, the really birth of the personal computer and the Macintosh, which came out with January, I think, 24th, 19, 1984. So when the Mac gets introduced, for me, that was the, the first piece. It was like, okay, we now have personal computers. And when I worked for Microsoft, you know, their vision was a computer on every desktop. And I think they can check that one complete uh, and beyond. And the 80s was, you know, the year of, of uh, Michael Jackson's thriller and really amazing movies like Back to the Future and Terminator and War Games. And we mm-hmm. started to really see visual effects and, and the personal computer comes out. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years later in the 90s, I think Mark Zuckerberg was born in 1994, or was he 10 years old then? I think he was 10 years old then. Um, 1994 is what? The internet, right? That, that in the 90s, we had the internet. And then you fast forward to 2000, uh, we've got high-speed internet. And 2007, we've got smartphones. And then, you know, the 4G networks came out. And so when you look at like personal computers, internet, bandwidth, and mobility, to me, those were the four ingredients that changed marketing from who we used to be to the role and function we had now. It was those technologies and capabilities that changed marketing because the buyer's journey changed and and everything changed. And I really like something that you, going back to your article, talked about is that, you know, who's the owner of the top of the funnel? Who's the owner in the bottom of the funnel? And so I don't know, by the way, John, if I fully agree with you that, you know, as you wrote, like marketing is no longer the sole owner at the top of the funnel and that sales needs to take more ownership. Um, maybe I'm being too literal or, or, or reading too much into what you wrote, because I feel that what's happened is marketing and sales should look at demand generation as net new customers and growing your install base. Like the function of demand generation should not be synonymous with net new and leads, that there's a whole continuum of revenue growth that happens in new and that. And what I think is that, and, and you mentioned about, let's, let's stop talking about baton passing. I don't think we should say anyone owns any particular part of the funnel. It's just that there's a shared responsibility through this continuum and that there is more of a lead role depending on where you are. So I do believe that in most organizations, marketing should be the primary driver of new awareness, interest, leads, whatever you want to call top of the funnel. That that if you had a, a scale and you tip the scale on who's the primary driver of that, in my experience, John, I want to get your take, I think that should be marketing in, into this day and age. But sales plays a role there. In the middle of the funnel, where there's what I call demand management, to me, that's a more shared responsibility. And I think your platform, the orchestration capabilities of that really talks to that because it's it's no longer, like you said, a baton pass. But then the lower funnel, and what I mean by the low, low funnel, I mean the install base of customers where 65 to 75% of your revenue is, to me, that's a shared responsibility between customer success and marketing. So nobody owns anything, but there are leads, if you will. What what are your thoughts in terms of how I'm I'm, I'm framing that? So yeah, I, I agree with the, the the headline that you know nobody owns anything, and, and that is I think 
probably the single biggest change in point that that I'm trying to make here. You know, I think the traditional model that's built into tools like Marketo and Eloqua is one of linear linear handoffs. You know, marketing generates the lead and then they pass it to sales. And when they do that, marketing stops, sales takes over. Sales closes a deal and they pass it to customer success. And when they do that, marketing and sales are both kind of disconnected. So the the change, which you're which you're alluding to more than anything else, is that that linear handoff no longer works, especially yes. when buyers are following nonlinear processes. Yeah. And you know the analogy I like to use is instead of a lint baton handoff, we're much more like a football or soccer team where we have players in different positions, which means they do different things. Um, but no matter what, the ball's passing forth as it moves down the field. Yeah. You know, maybe to stretch the analogy a little bit there, if it's, you know, a football team, you know, if you're on your five yard line, you know, you're going to run different plays, you know, you're going to throw long, you know, than if you're on their two yard line, you know, and again, the entire team lines up for that scr- huddle, you know, regardless of what line you're on, but there will be different primary players based upon where you are on the field. It's a, I think it's a great analogy. Um, I've often used military analogies that you know marketing's like the the air force and sales is like the army. Some people don't like military analogies, and I can't blame them for that. I, I think we can both say that this is not a baton pass. It's a it's a fluid orchestration of engagement across different business functions, and it's one of the reasons that in the post that I'm writing in the new normal. I'm encouraging people to stop referring to their departments as demand generation and to rebrand that that function as demand marketing um, because I find that for, you know, as, as the guy who coined the phrase demand gen, registered the domain, got the worldwide trademark, like I never intended demand gen to mean, as Wikipedia describes whoever wrote that, that it's about net new and leads. It is, it is not. And so maybe calling the department or function demand marketing and what you do is demand generation uh, may be more appropriate for 2020 because there is a bit, I feel, of a identity crisis. Um, in terms of, I want to talk about revenue, revenue ops, and, and get into ABM. Do you feel across the 250 or so customers that you have that there is a, a mindset and trend in terms of, hey, let's let's not be so siloed. Let's not have marketing ops and sales ops, and let's look at things as a revenue operations function and that, and that these tools and instruments of what we're doing is to collectively drive revenue. I'm, and I'm asking you because you have a very mature client base, the Engageo subscriber and, and adopter of your platform, they're not just getting started with B2B marketing. They've, they've already gone through the era of spray and pray, uh, you know, uh, wide net fishing, as you used to describe it, and, and they're being much more tactical uh, in what they're doing. Do you, do you see a, a different maturity within the organization typically? You know, I, I, I mean, I'm generally a fan of the RevOps concept. Um, I, the reality is if I look across our customers, there's a lot more people still with marketing ops titles than there are with revenue ops titles. You know, I think that's a, that's an org structure that you know makes sense. People talk about it, um, but but I, I still think it's it's aspirational in in reality for most companies. Even when you do have or uh, a rev ops team, which you know again that do, it does happen sometimes and it's awesome, um, you still have subspecialists 
that tend to focus more on marketing or more on sales. Mm-hmm. You know, and the part of the reason for that is just nobody can really be an expert, you know, at the level you need in all the different systems. No. When I, when I think of RevOps and encourage our clients to, let's say, adopt that, what what we're saying is, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the holacracy organizational structure, um, and it was uh, the shoe company. Why am I blanking on their name? I'll come back to that. Um, they were one of the pioneers of, of saying, hey, look, let's not have such a defined organizational chart. And they created this holacracy model, which really what it dumbs down to is there's pods. It's almost like what you said, the specialists on the football field. So when I describe RevOps, I recommend that they take that pod approach that not necessarily gives someone a revenue operations title, but form a cross-functional team of sales ops and marketing ops, even potentially IT or finance if needed, to create a pod of individuals that focuses on revenue operations and brings their expertise and discipline to it. I don't think you need to give someone necessarily that title or create yep. a department, but put, put a pod together. Yeah, and the other thing that you know I see the best companies doing is making sure that they're including post-sale and customer success in kind of thinking through the operations components as well. You know, so again, even if it's just marketing ops and sales ops, who's who's making sure that the post-sale team is getting the support they need? Let's talk about the changing role of, of sales a little bit. Uh, something, again, you talk about in the post in terms of, uh, you know, sales owning more of the top of the funnel. Um, and let's not get hung up on that ownership word, but we've seen tools like SalesLoft and Outreach, you know, platforms that integrate, that Engageo integrates with. And we're seeing SDR teams report into sales and report into marketing, even more common these days, reporting into marketing. So that's, I mean, who is sales and who is marketing anymore, right? I mean, is there really a black line separating these two departments as there have been in the past? What are your thoughts on that? Well, as we said, I don't believe there's the black line. I think it's a, it's a, it's a revenue team with players in different positions, um, but I don't, I think there's a lot of marketers who haven't fully grokked or understood the, the, the profound change that tools like outreach and sales offer having on them, you know, because again, marketing built credibility and respect over the last 15 years because they owned email because they owned, you know, the top of the funnel and now sales can kind of do that themselves, you know, using, taking advantage of tools like outreach and sales loft. I know a lot of companies where there's more email being sent out of those tools than out of Marketo. Uh, and as a marketer, you've got to adapt. You've got to adjust to that new world. You've got to find new ways to actually be contributing and adding value beyond solely generating leads and sending emails. You know, And that is just reinforces the same theme we've been on, David, which is marketing needs to play a bigger role throughout the funnel. Yeah. Marketing needs to pay attention to post or uh, taking existing opportunities and accelerating them. Yeah. You know, how do, how do you make it move faster? How do you improve win rates? And post-sale, I mean, as you said, 60, 65, 70% of revenue happens after that initial sale. And yet so many companies I talk to, marketing is still focused just on generating new business pipeline. And that is a disconnect that's going to break marketing if we don't evolve and adapt. Yeah. That's that's a big focus of of the post the new normal. Yep. I, I talk about that a lot. Um, in many it, in many ways, you know, if I can just go back to an analogy yeah. you talked about earlier, you know, fifteen years ago, marketing evolved from being seen as a cost center that threw parties and made color brochures, and and people and there was an effort we put into it to get people to look at marketing as people who could generate revenue, which was great. 
Now people look at marketing and saying, okay, you generate pipeline at the top of the funnel, but you don't do anything after the initial sale. We have to do the next transformation for how people think of the role of marketing. Yeah. You know, and it's going to be just as big as the first one. Agreed. Something that you guys did at Marketo uh, is when you had club, uh, marketing actually would go to it, which I thought was awesome. When, when David Kane was on your team and, and Heidi, uh, I would talk to them and I would, I, would, I would just smile ear to ear when I would hear that it was club normally reserved for the top sales performers and that was getting extended into marketing. And yeah. um, I love I seeing that as part of your guys' culture and I would encourage other organizations, anybody listening who's in marketing to, to ask that question. Uh, if you're driving revenue, why aren't you celebrating? And by the way, we do in marketing throw great parties. So if you even want to have an even better club, invite the marketing people to come because they do know how to throw great, great events. Uh, yeah, the other thing that we did at Marketo that we also do at Engage is we don't have a sales kickoff. We have a revenue kickoff. Love it. And, you know, marketing is there. And you know who else is there? So, you know, the CX team because they're handling a bigger revenue number than sales is. Yeah. I had a client uh, the other day. We had lunch. And I talk with them a lot about the lower funnel. And again, when I say the lower funnel, I mean the install base, not the lower part of the upper funnel. And this company generates 80% of their revenue from the install base. And when I ask him what their team spends the majority of their time on, he said net new. And yeah. I said, why is that? And he says, you know, there's, there's no good reason uh, for it other than just there's so much pressure for them to drive net new. They feel that there's still 200 companies out there in the world left that they need to get them to be their customers. And all the budget and all the marketing is spent on that. And yet their platform is very much like a razor blade opportunity where once you buy the platform, the, the bulk of the revenue comes from adopting and using the platform. So the fact that marketing there and customer success are not working closely together to drive onboarding, adoption, retention, and growth is, is a real tragedy because there's so much more revenue that they, if, they're, if the total strategy is growing revenue, you can do it through part A and part B. And, and part A is actually considerably harder, net new, versus the install base. And yet he said about $2 million of his budget is all focused on, he said the words demand generation. And I said, see, that's the point I'm trying to make, John, is that if demand generation means net new, then you gotta rebrand that term within your organization because marketing's responsibility is to drive revenue across that, that whole continuum. Can we talk about orchestration, a word you love? Uh, and something that, again, Engageo is, is really purpose-built to help facilitate. Uh, maybe going back into your experiences in, in marketing, why do you think so many marketers rely so heavily on email as like their only uh, or primary way for engaging with, with prospects and customers and, and not being much more omnichannel? Well, first of all, let me say I am actually a big fan of email. Uh, I'm not one of those people who are on the bandwagon of emails going away or peak email or anything like that. I mean, I even think about how you and I set up this call we're having right now. We did it over email. Yeah. You know, and so I, I think email is pretty damn important. Um, Agreed. But it's not the end all be all. You, you know, you can't rely only on email. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, they're the, 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 the thing that's wonderful about marketers is anytime we find something that seems to work, we all pile on and, you know, 
do more and more of that thing until it doesn't work anymore. Uh, and then we have to find the next new thing uh, that works until everybody else piles in on that one. You know, and so I, I think there is always going to be new other, new channels that come about that uh, marketers, you know, innovative marketers adopt and see great results from. Uh, and then they last for a while and then they get saturated. So like right now, today, direct mail is having, you know, a moment uh, and it works. You know, and the more personalized that direct mail, the more relevant it is to that person, the better. So a lot of people are, are really scaling Scaling up through use of that, which is again, you know, fantastic. Um, I see a lot of people using ads, uh, especially with the w- new technologies that let you, like, you know, LinkedIn, where you can target specific accounts. Right. Um, you know, I have kind of a love hate with ads. You know, I certainly think they play a role as part of a strategy, but I do see a lot of people going to ads is their only account-based strategy. Right. You know, they get a target list of accounts, maybe accounts that are showing intent. They buy ads. They say, hey, I'm doing ADM. And, you know, the I like to think of ads as kind of like the catch-up with your meal. You know, it, it, it certainly makes your meal better, uh, but you would not want to have a big bowl of ketchup as the only thing for your meal. <laughs> that, that would be gross for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. In fact, it's, uh, at the time of this recording, we're finishing up our 2020 budget and, you know, the places that I look the closest is our CEO is our marketing budget and our sales budget. And I can tell you that our marketing budget looks like specific lines of channel investment. So we do have a line of ad spend. We do have a line for direct mail. We do have a line for infrastructure that we use for marketing. And we do have lines for events. So all the different channels that we do, I can tell you, I know down to the dollar what our planned spend is next year. And what I know is that none of those lines are individual initiatives, that everything that Tiffany and her team do is omni-channel marketing. And and you and I talked about it a little bit yesterday. I, I was talking about our MPS program. So, you know, in our end of year orchestration, our customers got the NPS uh, survey. And following that, they got our end of year direct mailer, to your point about direct mail, very, very cute program that our marketing team put together. It's the 25 days of marketing bliss and you know, a little flip up uh, thing you know, leading down to the, the end of the year, uh, along with a postcard, all pre-printed, but, but done on demand based on, because if we had a customer tomorrow, they're going to get that mailing the next day because they now reach that target segment and we'll get that during the life of the, the program. So that type of orchestration. But the thing is, like, it's not, it's not easy. I mean, nothing in marketing is easy these days. But when done right, it's, it's highly effective, something that you've always talked about, that you know, one plus one is three. The more channels you use, the more effective. And I'm glad you're saying that you know, in, your, in your take, like, do ads, but, but watch your spend there. Don't, don't get out of control. Make sure that it's, it's producing for you. Don't let that be your primary ABM strategy. Yeah. Right? You know, you're not going to really connect with an executive at a big company um, if all you're doing is ads. You know, um, and, and that's ABM is ABM is really about being more focused and more relevant, putting more effort to reaching the people and accounts you really want to reach. There is no easy button. You can't just turn ads on and say magic's going to happen. I know you struggled 
Well, struggle is the wrong word. You you kept rethinking the ABM acronym because of the M and whether it should be something else. Any thoughts these days in terms of whether that acronym is is falsely representing the the cross functional and, and omni channel nature of of what needs to be done in B two B marketing? Yeah, well, it certainly does misrepresent it. You know, and and much the same way, marketing automation was a misnomer. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know better than anybody, you buy marketing automation, you have to put more bodies against it, not fewer, mm-hmm. to make it successful. Yeah. You know, and yeah, ABM is is not a marketing only strategy. So, you know, I think we still call it that because that's what the industry calls it. And sometimes, you know, you can't win on that. But but I have customers who call it ABSM for account-based sales and marketing. We have customers who call it account-based everything. Uh, I have one customer calls it account-based X. ABX, um, you know, and then, you know, it's funny. I've seen, you know, Topo, the analyst firm has mm-hmm. basically just dropped the third word. They just right? go account based. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, let's, you gotta be account based, have an account based strategy, do account based. So, it, you know, yes, it's a misnomer. It's an acronym. It's still a popular search term. Do, so for sure. But last thing I'll say is, you know, we, we don't, you know, we're, we're primarily calling ourselves today a B2B marketing engagement platform Right. that happens to let you support account-based strategies. You know, and so we are definitely uh, evol- trying to evolve our own message a little bit there as well. Right. A um, couple, couple final questions, and then again, I want to do this call to action with you. Um, lead management and the funnel. Uh, I believe that you and I are big proponents of a funnel methodology. And I think we see it in similar ways where it's like an inventory system for managing demand. Some people recently I've seen over the past six months are starting to poo-poo the funnel and say that the funnel's not relevant because it's not a linear buying sequence. And I, I feel they have it wrong. I think they, if they're suggesting... If they're suggesting that everybody moves from stage to stage, no, of, of course not. But you need to manage your inventory. Sales knows how to do this really well. They've always called it a pipeline. And I, and I coined the phrase demand funnel. If you search Google, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the next three pages of it. Because I always call the demand funnel rather than like Sirius's demand waterfall as an inventory system for demand. It's elongating the pipeline that sales has all the way up through marketing. What are your thoughts in terms of the, if you've seen any of this, people saying like the funnel's dead, it's a dead methodology, don't, don't follow it. I love talking about this one. This is one of my favorite topics these days. And I like to go back to that football analogy I used earlier. You know, so if you look at a football game, that ball does not move linearly down the field, right? It no. moves forward, it moves backwards, it gets lateral, it goes back and forth all over the place. Um, and so nobody would ever say football is a linear journey. Nope. And yet at the same time, there are yard lines on the field. And the yard lines tell you a lot of information. Yes, they do. They tell you how likely are you to score, right? And you can therefore start making predictions about the future based upon where you are on the field. Second, as I said earlier, they give you a lot of insight around what plays you should run. And so they have, they have, there's information and guidance about what you should do just based upon knowing where you are. So I think that's, to me, that's what the funnel does for B2B marketing. Yeah. Sure, the process is not going to be linear. But it's still essential, I think, to know where each account is in its journey 
So that way you can A, make predictions around what's going to happen and B, know best practices and what steps you should be taking. I I love the football analogy. I don't like the military one. And I'm going to amplify the shit out of that, John, because I think it's so relevant. You know, when you're on the 20 yard line is a lot different than when you're in the red zone. And the team members that you have on the field are different team members depending on the play. And And that team's represented across sales, marketing and service. Good stuff. All right. Last question for you. Lead management. Um, some people lead have, management? yeah. Some people have said that lead management is almost a thing, like lead scoring and 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 lead nurturing and that type of stuff. They're starting to say, you know, if you're doing ABM, they're questioning whether you do lead management. I'm like, absolutely, you have to do lead management. It's a precursor. If there's a maturity curve to B2B marketing, you have to score individual contacts. You have to score accounts. You can only score accounts if you're scoring the individual contacts and, and waiting that engagement. You know, there is still an MQL at an individual level. And there's a, maybe an MQA, a marketing qualified account, when there's enough individuals there. What are your thoughts in terms of lead management? Again, some people saying, like, you know, don't talk about it anymore. That, that's old B2B marketing thinking. I disagree. I think there's almost no company that I've found that is all in on just being account-based or just being kind of traditional lead or demand gen based, um, using demand gen the way it's colloquially used. Uh, almost every company is running a hybrid strategy. You know, and the reason why is because you know, your go-to-market should not be a one-size-fits-all. You should use a different go-to-market to go after $500,000 deals than you use to go after deals, which in turn be different from $40,000 deals. And the reality is a lot of companies I know do deals in all three of those ranges. Yeah. Maybe even they have seven figure deals. Uh, And so, you know, I I think, I mean, I was meeting, I had a practice with a customer not long ago who is like this. They have deals in all range sizes and it was stressing him out because he felt like he needed a grand unified theory of how he's going to measure results. Like, can I, can I, and basically, you know, can I adopt MQA, marketing qualified account as my core metric? And what I told him is like, don't, don't, you know, MQAs are a great metric for when you're measuring how well are you going after big, complicated accounts, Mm -hmm. six figure deals. And then for your smaller deals, you should use a traditional, you know, lead generation model because that's what's appropriate. Sometimes you're fishing with nets, sometimes you're fishing with spears. Yeah. You know, and having, you know, again, what Topo calls a double funnel is totally a reasonable thing to do. All right, sir. Well, here's my call to action because I know you got to go to a meeting. I love doing the podcast and I love doing the podcast with you, but, and it's a big but, I love show and tell even more. And I feel that one thing that's sorely lacking, and I've talked about this on previous episodes, is more show and tell around these powerful MarTech tools. We just finished Dreamforce and OpStars, and there were like no show and tells. And where did all the products go? So my ask to you, Mr. Miller, is if in January, you and I can do a show and tell together and show Engageo and show the capabilities as we went through yesterday. Because I think if anybody looked at your platform previously, they need to see the latest and greatest. And if they haven't yet, it will crystallize the things that we are talking about when we talk about orchestration and when we talk about engagement and account-based fill-in-the-blank. So can we do that? Can we do that in January and do a show and tell uh, using some new technology that I think is just you know way above any webinar 
that anyone has ever seen before. Can you, since you did the first podcast with me, can you be the first of this new show and tell that I want to bring to everybody? I think that sounds super fun. All right, let's do it. We should do it. Thank you. I, I figured you wouldn't say no, or I wouldn't ask <laughs> why we're live. Um, John, thank you so much. Congratulations on another great year for you guys. Um, it's so fantastic to watch the growth and for you to be uh, an entrepreneur twice and have, have the success that you guys are having. I appreciate all the thought leadership and strategy that you're providing uh, in the ecosystem. And, and together, I feel like we're, we're really helping mature B2B marketing, and it, it's a lot of fun. Appreciate the partnership. Ditto. Same. Thank you. You bet. Give my best to the team, to all of you. If uh, this is your last episode of the year, I hope you had a great 2019. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Be sure to give it a rating on iTunes if you would, and we will catch you on the next episode. Take care. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing. 